In this episode, I'm joined by John Yates, PhD, also known as Chuladasa. On the 19th of August 2019, the board of Chuladasa's organization Dharma Treasure released a public letter which denounced Chuladasa for the Buddhist ethical failings of sexual misconduct, wrong speech, and taking what is not freely given. Chuladasa issued two short statements at that time, and then recently on January 13th of 2021, released a full 33-page account of the years leading up to the board's letter. In this interview, Chuladasa discusses his account, which disputes the board's accusations and reveals the circumstances that led to his public denouncement. Chuladasa also discusses the personal and professional consequences of the letter and reflects on the psychological and spiritual lessons learned. So without further ado, Chuladasa. Chuladasa, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. On the 19th of August 2019, the Board of Dharma Treasure, which was the organization you'd founded as a vehicle for your teaching activities, released a letter publicly in which you were accused of, as they put it, violating the Upasaka vows, the layperson precepts, uh, specifically of sexual harmlessness, right speech, and taking what is not freely given. The letter then went on to detail those accusations and announced that you've been removed from the Board of Dharma Treasure, voted off by the board members. You made some statements at the time, short statements at the time, which we can discuss. Uh, but then crucially, a few days ago on 13th of January, 2021, you released a 33-page document, which is your full account of the years and circumstances leading up to the events of the release of the letter. And shortly after the uh, release of that document, uh, we had some correspondence and you agreed to appear on the podcast to discuss mm -hmm. this series of events and to uh, discuss some of the contents of your 33-page account. So before we get into your account of what occurred, I think it would make sense to lay out what the board accusations were and what the Upasaka vows are and why they're relevant in this context. Okay, well, basically what they said in that letter, they had taken something that had happened uh, about four years earlier, after Nancy and I had already decided that we would be selling our buildings and property and uh, no longer living together as a married couple. Um, quite a few months after we'd made that decision, uh, I met and, and became involved with a very small group of, of women. Uh, this was something Nancy was fully aware of and that I talked to her freely about and she, uh, she didn't have a problem with it at all. She was quite interested and curious. What the board had done had taken that and they made it sound like something that had been ongoing for four subsequent years. Uh, which was, you know, which is just simply not the case, but they had made it into something that it wasn't. Uh, these other things that they threw in there, well, okay, the way they framed that was I had committed adultery, and then they turned it into I had failed to keep one of the Upasaka precepts. Well, what they had done is confronted me 
with this list of uh, allegations. And I was caught completely by surprise. And I tried to deal with them in the moment. Okay, you want to know about this thing that happened years ago. Let me see if I can remember and, and explain it to you, which I wasn't very prepared to do. And uh, what I didn't realize until I had already, we, we're talking about the first time they confronted me. There were, there were four more meetings after that. But in that first meeting, I didn't know where they were coming from. I didn't know what they were trying to do. I was simply trying to answer questions that they asked specifically about something that happened a long time ago. I didn't know what their context was. I didn't know what their agenda was. Later on, they announced to me these very draconian ultimatums, these conclusions that they had come to. And uh, so basically nothing that I had done in that first meeting was productive of anything because I didn't know what this thing was about. As I say, they frame things in terms of adultery rather than argue with them. Well, yeah, we were still married. As a matter of fact, even though we were not going to be living together in the future, Nancy had requested but I don't want us to get divorced. And I had said, well, sure, okay, we won't get divorced then. So technically it was adultery. So I saw no reason to disagree with that. It wasn't until later, it may not have been until their letter that they framed this in terms of Ukasakovat, sexual misconduct. I think had they done that earlier, I probably would have had a clearer ground to respond and say, well, wait a minute. No, I've never violated that Upasaka precept because I hadn't. Um, another thing that they claimed in that letter is that I had engaged in false speech. Well, I had. In that letter, though, they made it sound as though what I had engaged in false speech was about was not telling my wife that I had been involved with other women, which was not true at all. What I had engaged in false speech about was trying to protect someone I became involved in with much later from Nancy after her initial acceptance of this person, my relationship with her. Uh, several years later, when that had turned around 180 degrees, she began to make threats towards this person. And yes, I did very intentionally engage in, in false speech. What it was not was wrong speech from my point of view. So there was, where, whereas that was the one thing that they claimed, that, although they said wrong speech, they didn't say false speech, but it would be technically correct to say that I engaged in false speech and I acknowledge that but I did not consider it then or now to be wrong speech. And I think I've stated my reasons for that clearly enough. The other thing is the precept of taking out what's not freely given. This is not something that they made much of at all in their discussions with me. They made more of it in the letter. Once again, it's something that I would have and could have responded to 
had it been brought up, they claimed that I had misused our joint uh, funds, assets, our, our marital uh, income, which I had not done. You know, Nancy and I had made very clear agreements, which actually had less to do with anything that I was doing with the money than the fact that what she was doing was involving the expenditure of a lot of money. And in fairness, we needed a way, since we were moving in different directions, since we didn't know how much money either of us would have to live on, it made sense to have agreements in place. So this was something that was, so I would disagree that I failed to keep any of the precepts. Uh, technically, I did commit adultery, but in terms of the precepts, it was not sexual misconduct. Uh, technically speaking, in the elucidation of what wrong speech is, one of the things that's mentioned is false speech. But if one understands the purpose of the precepts, which is not to cause harm, this was not done in order to cause anybody harm, but it was done to protect somebody from harm. So I disagree that I broke any of the Apostle precepts. I never felt that I did. What I did, I did in full consciousness of the precepts and having, having evaluated in advance my speech and my actions. So that's basically, that shows you the sort of difference in perspective. Um, I was dealing with something that happened long ago. I didn't even know why I was being asked to deal with it. Um, they were already, I didn't know this, but they were already primed to believe that somehow these long ago events were something that were ongoing. Uh, and then likewise, framing it in terms of precepts and adultery and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, I'd like to ask you more about those meetings and that priming. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but to summarize some of what you said in the document, and it is publicly available for people to read, and I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes here so people can read your uh, statement in full. We're not going to go through it completely comprehensively. We're not going to read it out here. Uh, but in terms of the sexual misconduct aspect, at the time you had other relationships, Nancy and yourself had already agreed to separate. You were still technically married and we're still running the B&B &B retreat center together. Oh, and another thing to add to that, the Mind Illuminated had not been published yet. Right. I was relatively unknown. What's the relevance of that? Well, because a lot of people have assumed that this was all taking place in the context of me being having become well known as a Dharma teacher. Uh, and it was not. It took place before that occurred. And actually, the letter doesn't imply this has anything to do with you becoming well known as a Dharma teacher. Mm -hmm. And the letter specifies that the relationships you had were not with students mm -hmm. or people connected to you as a teacher. And that's a point that you, you make in the document. There, your document and the board letter agree on that point. Mm -hmm. So having agreed to separate, but continuing to work together in the, uh, and live together in the bed and breakfast retreat center that you ran, Nancy, in your account, began spending more and more time in Canada where she was uh, hoping to move to eventually. And so this uh, extended period of living together after separating while still remaining married was partly to do with the financial setup 
for your full separation. Your account states that. Right. And, and during that time, you have both had agreement that if you wanted to see other people, you could do. And, and you began to do that. So did she. Not that, not that she was necessarily sexually involved with anybody. I don't know. And it doesn't matter to me. But she was making new friendships. She was actively seeking out new relationships with other people, just as I was. And a crucial point, which you talk at length about in your statement is, I mean, the question, why didn't you get a divorce? You address some of that. Why didn't you just divorce if, in fact, you were separating? And secondly, why uh, was this not made uh, public or why did people not know about it within your circle, mm -hmm. even within your circle? So these are two questions that you consider in the document. Maybe we could talk about those. Mm -hmm. Well, the situation was that we knew that this wasn't going to happen literally for years. We didn't know how many years it was going to take. There was a lot of work that needed to be done on the property and buildings before they could be sold. Um, to get the value that we needed to out of the property and buildings, it was going, we were going to need a particular kind of buyer. And that was going to take a lot of time, probably. I mean, these things are unpredictable, right? But it was likely that it was going to take a long time to find that buyer, even after we'd gotten everything ready, you know, to be attractive to such a buyer to uh, for the sale to take place. Basically, you know, we were, we were in a very beautiful remote location, which we had created some, a, a very beautiful home within that. Who was going to be able to afford it and why would they? Most likely it was going to be some very wealthy family who would buy it as a family vacation property. And so that's what we were gearing towards. We knew that was gonna take several years. We had my father living with us. We had uh, our dear friend Allegra living with us. My parents had built the main home here. Uh, when they did that at a time I'd been diagnosed as having uh, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And at the time they were building it, Allegra had uh, wanted to, offered to, uh, share in the cost of building the house in order that she could have an apartment to live out the rest of her life. So there, my, my mother had died a few years earlier uh, after the house was built and it was living in. So we had my father living with us in the house that he had built. We had Allegra living with us in the house that she had helped to build. We had, we had a lot of close neighbors who would, of course, be disconcerted by learning about all of this. There really seemed to no, be no reason. Well, we had our families. Uh, our families were living in Canada, but, uh, well, I have a sister living on the East Coast. We had our families. Why cause disruption for them, for any of these people? Why cause Allegra to worry about, well, what's going to happen to me? And my father to say, well, what's going to happen to me? Or our neighbors to say, you know, we're in a small canyon. People really love that place. They care a lot about what happens. Have them start worrying about, well, oh no, what kind of person are you going to sell us to? 
what are we going to have happening here in, in, this, in this very special secluded place? There was no reason to create a lot of upset and turmoil for these people regarding something that wasn't going to happen for at least two or three years. We knew it was going to take that long. There would be plenty of time to let people know in as those years unfolded. That's the place that we were coming from. Nancy said, well, I don't want to get divorced. I don't know what kind of relationship we'll be having. Uh, we did talk about things like uh, Picasso, Simone de Beauvoir, other people who have been in, in relationships where they weren't living together. We talked about all of those things. We spent hours talking about the possibility of it. There were a lot of unknowns for us. There's no reason to make problems for other people in something that was as yet so ill-defined and was going to take a long time. Does that make sense to you? Can you see the point in that? The other thing is that I have to say, for me, I didn't realize how happy that I would be to hear Nancy say, you know, I don't think we're going to be living together anymore. But I did. So some might say, well, why when she said, I don't want to get a divorce, didn't you say, uh, well, okay, we don't need to do that now, but let's, let's get a separation or something. Rather, it was just easier. It was, I, I, I was never, almost any time I raised something that was not in agreement with what Nancy wanted, it turned into, uh, it became very unpleasant. I ended up withdrawing from it and just letting things right. So I had often learned in order to skip that intermediate stage of having a lot of unpleasantness, just, yeah, okay, right? There were a lot of reasons, many, many reasons to have just, for us both to have felt like it made more sense just, you know, we know where we're going with this. There's no need to tell anybody else. Can you see that? Nothing mysterious about it at all. As a matter of fact, I think the majority of people in a similar situation to us would have probably made the same decision. I can certainly see the rationale. Mm -hmm. And of course, the problem is with that is that seeing as nobody knew about the separate separation agreement, that context was not available to the board members. Uh, at the you know the events uh, of mid 2019. Yes. Um, so this is why it's uh, relevant. Do you think if they'd been aware of the separation, they would have seen it differently? Undoubtedly, totally. They would have seen it totally differently. So the question is, and this is also a question you raise in the document: Why didn't you tell them? It seems the most inflammatory of the accusations is to do with the relationships you had with women who were not your wife, which your statement you know, says was post-separation. That's the inflammatory part of the letter. That's been cast mm -hmm. as sexual misconduct. Yes. Uh, and so why didn't you provide them with the context that would have presumably diffused that most inflammatory accusation? Well, because I was answering the things that they brought up. The questions that they were asking me was, 
you know, have you been involved with, uh, I can't remember how they put it, prostitutes, sex workers, something like that. They didn't ask me anything about my relationship. I answered the questions that they asked. And looking back on that, um, looking at the recordings of those meetings, I could see what was happening there. Anytime I started talking about something that got away from what I suspect, they probably had lists of questions sitting in front of them, something like that. I don't know, this is purely speculation on my part, and I could be completely wrong, but that's the feeling I get. And anytime something I said began to go in a different direction, they would quickly bring it back to the thing that they were talking about. This was very easy for them to do because I was thinking in this narrow sense, okay, they want to know answers to what did you do? When did you do it? Why did you do it? And so I answered those questions, you know, what, when, why, things like that. I just, it just didn't occur to me why are they asking this? What's the bigger context of this? What else is it that they're trying to get at? I didn't even think of it at the time. I was just trying to answer their questions. So their questions controlled the direction of the conversation. Yeah. What did you think they were doing when they were asking those questions? I didn't know. I was honestly quite baffled. I suppose... You know, trying to remember, it, it's, it's not so easy to remember the kinds of thoughts that were going on in the back of your mind or the feelings that you have uh, in a situation like that, because they're often not very clear, even if you're trying to remember it right after it happens. But to the best that I can recall, I thought that it had to do with just the fact that, that some of the friends of mine that I had met back in that period had been sex workers. I thought that was the main thing that they were concerned about. That's what they were asking questions about. They were concerned about, uh, you know, had I had sex with them. So I was thinking that they were concerned to know probably some of the same things that a lot of the people that subsequently read their letter in August of 2019 thought is, uh, well, why would somebody who's, who's been practicing Dharma for all of these years um, be interested, you know, even bother talking to somebody who was a sex worker? I tried to answer that question. I tried to say, hey, this is really different. These were really different. This is not like I was picking up the hooker on the street or something like that. I tried to explain that. I thought that's what they wanted to know. A lot of the other kinds of questions that people understandably asked afterwards is, was, well, were you responding to sexual craving? Is that what this is about? I thought that's what they wanted to know. I tried to answer those questions. And I think they took my attempts to answer those questions in a different way than I meant them. Because I think they already had well, later it became apparent. I have to say those other three meetings were all about, uh, I say the other was formal. The fourth doesn't count because it only lasted a few minutes. I said, I would like us to talk about this with the mediator. They said, no, they stopped the meeting and they published the letter. 
the other three meetings, between the first one and that last one, were all about, they had, you know, that uh, the only way that I could resolve this situation to their satisfaction was to write an apology, uh, you know, admitting to these things that they were claiming, which by the way, I wasn't really clear what they were yet uh, in a specific sense, but then they provided me with their draft of what they thought my apology should say, which, you know, and that's what the other three meetings were about, was just basically me saying, well, I, I can't say that, it's not true. You know, and this push back and forth. Well, what can you say? Well, I can say this. Well, we're not satisfied with that. We want you to say this instead. That's what all that other time was wasted on. And then a, a, a next question might be, why in your August 23rd, 2019 statement, why there did you say, I'll quote here, I'm writing to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the harm and suffering I've caused my wife and family. I engaged in adultery and wrong speech and failed to honor my commitment to my marriage. And then you go on to say uh, some other things. Why at that point, when you are apologizing for failing to honor the commitment to your marriage, why not at that point reveal the agreement within the marriage that you were able, both of you to go um, uh, to, to see other people? Rather than uh, omit that detail, it seems you're almost stating the opposite of that here. Well, I was in a state of shock. I'd been in a, uh, for six weeks, I had been very busy trying to manage a lot of things while also being uh, experiencing a lot of extreme fatigue. And, uh, uh, and I, there's this process going on that I didn't understand that I was struggling to deal with in the best way I could. Um, and it had abruptly come to an end. And their letter, I never ever, based on what had gone before, expected, well, I didn't expect them to put out their own letter until that last meeting when they basically said, you're gonna either agree to our letter or we're gonna put our own letter out. What, <laughs> you are? <laughs> I mean, I'd gone to that meeting saying, Look, the only, look, guys, the only way we're going to be able to talk about this and get things sorted out is to get a mediator involved. You know, this is obviously not working. Uh, so the shock that they were going to send out their own letter, then the shock of what was in that letter, because based on what had gone before, I never expected to see in that letter what I did. I was just, okay, I don't know what to do. And some well-meaning people gave me advice, which sounded good to me at this point. They said, look, just apologize to people. You know, that's all they really want. Give them an apology and then take your time. You know, don't say anything else, just apologize. So I thought about that and I thought, okay, you know, I, I, I wasn't thinking as clearly as I should have been. I was like, hey, that sounds like a good advice. I would just say, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I, you know, these things happen. My biggest mistake probably was using their language, ad adultery, long speech, things like that. You'll notice I did not apologize for, uh, you know, they accused me of using uh, uh, joint funds for 
for my own purposes. And they had couched that in terms of the precepts and said, taking what's not freely given. I didn't apologize for that because that was the most absurdly untrue part of the things that they addressed. But so I apologized, unfortunately, using their language. Even if I had apologized using something that was more descriptive of my own point of view of what I had done, would have been better, but I didn't. Um, I was in a state of shock and it was sort of a knee jerk thing. I wrote it out and posted it before showing it to anybody else. If I'd shown it to the people that encouraged me to apologize, they would have probably said, well, well hey, wait a minute, is this really what you wanna say? But unfortunately I didn't do that. I felt like I needed to do something. So I went ahead and did it. It was ill-considered. It wasn't accurate what I said. Had I apologized and done it in an accurate way, that would have been very different too, would it not? Yes, I think it would have been, yeah. If yeah. your apology had if your apology had been framed the way your latest statement was framed, it would have mm -hmm. read rather differently, which is why I bring it up. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a big mistake. And you know, so I tried to make that clear when I you know, more recently. By the way, just so that everyone is clear, for a year and a half, I felt the pressure and obligation of all of these people who were hurt or particularly confused, who had been waiting for some kind of response from me. I hadn't been able to say anything. Um, and it was probably good that I uh, couldn't say things more immediately, but it ended up taking a year and a half before I was free to say anything. And that was a very long time. And so my point in writing this was to try to give people to do the best job that I could of giving them the information that I thought they needed so that I could let go of all of this and move on. I don't there's nothing in particular that I want, no particular result I want, other than the one that I feel like I've gotten from the majority of people. I've received dozens of emails in response to it. The overwhelming majority of them say something to the effect of, thanks, this is very helpful. Uh, I really not understood any of this. Now I understand it better. So I feel like I've achieved what I wanted. That was my only goal in this. You know, am I expecting an apology from those people that did this? No, I'm not. I, I'm not only expecting it, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other, as they do. Am I expecting to have, uh, to, to be returned to Dharma treasure? No, as a matter of fact, in the state that things are in now, I wouldn't want to be none of these things. All I wanted to do was fulfill the obligation that I perceived that I have to all of these people who have been hurt and confused by, by what I did, by the false things that were said about what I did, and even more so by the long period in which I couldn't even respond. So I'm satisfied with what I've done. I feel like I've done a good job. So 
you know, just, just to be clear, I don't, there's nothing more than I'm expecting to come from this. And I'm not too concerned with what people do with it, because from far as I can tell, the majority of people have found it useful and helpful. And that was my goal. Another question that may arise is, what prompted Nancy to go to the board and for this series of events to occur? What, what was the prompt for that? And it seems that your account, and correct me if I'm wrong here, summarizes it something along these lines. So you'd had, you had this agreement of continuing to work together to ensure your mutual financial well-being. Uh, you're going to get yourselves to the point where you could divest yourselves of the property and use that money separated and go and then go your separate ways. You're in your 70s at this point and Nancy's in her 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that gives people a sense of the time of life we're talking about. And as part of your re- seeing other people in your relationships with them, occasionally you would financially support them in terms of helping with rent or helping with medical uh, bills, uh, things of that nature. And you said in the document that that was uh, part of um, practice of of generosity and and just what you were doing for them as people you were in a relationship with, and that Nancy was aware of that. And of course, it pertains to your plan of how you're going to divide the funds, which is what you've said. And so the agreement was that any financial support you would extend to anyone you're in a relationship with, you'd transfer the same amount into a private account of Nancy's, and that that was borne out in the record of deposits. Yes. And that also at this time, and another thread that's relevant now is that you were facing a lot of health challenges and facing actually uh, death a number of occasions throughout this period. And so it wasn't entirely clear how long you were going to live. And at any point during this period, you might have, you might have died. Uh, you had cancer and operations happening and say all sorts of uh, uh, medical challenges you were facing during that time and had been for about a decade. And so after a particular low point where it looked like you were going to die, you didn't and you rallied. And after having rallied, you engaged in a new relationship. And it seems from your document that the beginning of that new relationship was a season change in terms of Nancy's perspective on things, Nancy's approach, and that perhaps... Let's stop here. That's the trouble that... You know, this is a story that unfolded over a long period of time. Right. And it's it's easy to get things out of uh, out of order here. I became involved in another relationship um, less than a year after I began cancer treatment, at a time when my prognosis was very poor, and Nancy was quite. She didn't have a problem with that relationship. She, her first reaction, just make up a list of my, to put together a summary of my medical history, a list of my doctors and things like this, so that my friend could take care of me after Nancy had gone to Canada. She was fine with this. There wasn't, the relationship didn't start later when my prognosis got better. It's a relationship that Nancy had accepted she ceased to accept when my prognosis got better. Okay. Why do you think that when your prognosis improved, Nancy's attitude towards the relationship changed for the worse? Let me go back to where you first started with this line of questioning. Why do I suppose that Nancy did this and went to the board? 
That's what you asked. Yeah. So let's begin there. This was one of the big questions in my mind. Uh, two of the things that really bothered me that I didn't know, why did Nancy do this? And the other thing is, why did the board respond the way that they did? And, you know, I hadn't expected Nancy to ever do anything like this. Um, and so for me, it was a big question. Why did she? And what were the motivations? I mean, I immediately knew it had something to do with my friend, or referred to as W, stands for woman, right? <laughs> uh, my friend W. And I knew it had something to do uh, with, with money because that had been an issue all the way along. In terms of why the board, you know, what I would have expected had she gone to them, that they would have come back to me and said, wow, what's going on? You guys have a situation. So these were the questions that I was trying to answer. This is where I originally, you know, I didn't set out to write a 33 page document. I was trying to work out for myself. And, and people that were, you know, different people were helping me in this process. Therapist, life coach, um, which they had really valuable input and, and friends, one friend in particular. And what everybody said is just put it all down. You can edit it later, put it all down. And so in the process of doing that, all my understanding of things began to emerge. Things that hadn't been evident in the first place. Now, to do with the board's reaction, one of the first things I realized was that their reaction was probably based on the information that they received and how it was presented to them. Aha, light bulb. They had limited information. They didn't really know any of the things that would have caused them to react more appropriately. All right. So that started becoming clear. So once again, I had to focus on what had happened over those years, why the change, and what could have brought Nancy to the place of doing it. That's what I tried to, that's what I extracted from all that I had written and put in this document was it long and drawn out, but there was no other way I knew of to explain it, right? Um, even having given that much detail, I've noticed that most people don't read it. They don't read it very carefully. And so uh, it might escape them. So, well, that's all right. I've done the best I can. That's not my problem. But nevertheless, it began to emerge to me that the issues were my relationship with this other woman and concerns about money. We never knew how much money we would get. We didn't know whether it would be enough for both of us to live on. When we knew how much it would be and that it would be enough, that was also when my prognosis was getting better. My relationship with this other woman was by then going on two years old. It was obviously not going to be a transient relationship, although it, it did begin to unravel because of the stresses of what happened in 2018. But what struck me in creating this timeline was, wow, 
prognosis bad. Uh, John's going to die soon. Nancy's happy with it. Prognosis is good. John might live a long time. John may even uh, someday marry this other woman. Uh, everything changes. Prog prognose changing prognosis and money began to emerge as big parts of what was driving this. Now there's an emotional component too. I don't think Nancy, although she knew what she wanted, I don't think she was at all clear on what form her relationship might take. And quite honestly, after we'd made this decision, most of our discussions for the first few months were assuming that, all right, we're gonna be married but we're going to be living a thousand miles apart. And yeah, we'll visit each other every now and then. But what kind of relationship are we gonna have? Well, I don't know. We talked about it for hours. Like I say, we, we talked about other people that had these kinds of long distance relationships. Uh, would ours be like that or not? We also talked about the possibility that it wouldn't be. That, you know, uh, well, now by that time, when we first were talking about it, I hadn't been involved with anybody else. As a matter of fact, most of the time that I'd start spending away was spent by myself in the desert and the mountains. But these conversations continued over the next uh, years and they began to take shape once I became involved with somebody else. And Nancy clearly expressed that, well, she wasn't going to be living you know, in the Northwest, either in Washington State or British Columbia. She wasn't going to be living there as, uh, as a, a lonely, separated wife. And I never expected her to. So in trying to understand why Nancy did this and why things happened the way they did, another thing that emerged was that for, well, why did Nancy do this? She had, my son was having some difficulties in his life, in her life, in his life. Nancy started spending more time there uh, helping him out. I think that's what led her to the decision. I mean, it was quite, it was one thing to decide that we cannot continue this lifestyle. We are going, we, we, we are going to have to sell out and we're gonna to have to hope that the results of that can meet our needs. But what I think led Nancy to the decision that she was going to move away and that we were gonna live separately she knew that if she returned to Canada uh, or the Northwest of the US, that I wouldn't be able to live there. She had accepted that based on her experience of starting to spend more time in Canada with her family and with our family. Her family lives in Victoria. With her family and our family, it came clear to her that once we had sold, she wanted to go back there to live and she knew I wouldn't be able to live there, okay? So she knew what, where she wanted her life to go. She knew what, it wanted, what she wanted it to look like. She had chosen that. But I think at the same time, she wasn't quite ready to just let go of our relationship, let go of her marriage. So, and the fact that we had agreed that, yeah, there's no need to get a divorce. It doesn't matter. Maybe we can find some way to have a long distance marriage. Other people have done it. 
all of these things were conducive to her continuing to hold on to this, the idea of the relationship in some form would continue. I mean, we did love each other very much. We wouldn't have stayed together. It was 30 years by then. We wouldn't have been together for 30 years had, it, had there not been a lot of love, okay? And so, yeah, that is the way that women love. Um, men love that way too, but I think women do more so. And it's one of the wonderful things about women that they are that way. But, but this was intermixed with, you know, she knew the life she wanted for herself. She wanted to be able to have the life she wanted for herself. She also wanted something that she didn't know, know exactly what in terms of our relationship. As things evolved from that point, me becoming involved with somebody else, my being diagnosed with cancer, my having what it seemed like a relatively short time to live, <clears throat> the, the cancer starting to proliferate, grow, spreading to my brain, bones, things like that. My sister developed cancer sometime in advance of August of uh, 2015 when I got my first x-ray. She died of it just before uh, they did the biopsy uh, diagnosing my cancer, you know, a couple of months later. Wow. Exactly the same cancer. By the way, my other sister was also diagnosed with exactly the same cancer uh, around the same time that I was, all three of us. That's a, uh, anyway, what that is relevant to is that Nancy's situation is she's looking at this. His sister's already died. His other sister has the same cancer. They, the doctor says that this is what the prognosis is. Then a little bit later, after they've done everything they can, all the cancer is taken off. Now spread to his brain, different parts of his lungs, his bones, things like that. Well, I mean, the love and the caring was still there, but there was this pragmatic thing. Well, I, you know, she has her life and she wants to prepare for it. And I was very sympathetic to that. It became less an issue of do we stay married or not as how, how do we arrange things so that Nancy is going to be okay after I'm gone? So I don't know if I've succeeded in creating a clear picture of the way things were at the end of, or towards the day, in the fall of 2017, when I started on this new medication. They changed dramatically over the next few months. My prognosis became extremely positive. Um, brain metastasis disappeared, bone metastasis healed. Other metastases in my lung were shrinking and disappearing, uh, like lights going out. And, uh, and it looked like I may live a lot longer than expected. Uh, I was also very much involved in another relationship with somebody else. And also, lo and behold, there was going to be plenty of money to go around. That's when everything changed. And so I think my speculation is that with Nancy, it was the attachment to our relationship that had been relatively less important if I was going to die 
far better for her to prepare for my death, right? Rather than cling to anything going on. Once that's gone, then she would be losing the relationship with me if I was going to be living and if I was going to continue to be involved with somebody else. She had something else to lose that she didn't have to lose before. That had other ramifications too. What if, you know, and I said, this is not going to be the case, Nancy. This is a, what if you decide to get married and then this other woman gets, you know, has all of your assets when you die? Or what if you just decide to give it to her and you don't even get married? Then, you know, she's not doing that. I tried to understand it in terms of that. There's another thing that is, I think it would add a lot to everyone's understanding, but I just don't feel comfortable mentioning it. So I'm not going to. Just I'll put it out there. If there's another fact that would have made a huge difference in people's understanding, it made a huge difference to my understanding when I discovered it. Uh, but there was there were a constellation of things that put her in a state of of fear and potential loss because I was in another relationship, because it seemed to be a stable one that would continue, and because I now had a much longer prognosis. I think fear uh, and fear easily becomes anger. Well, fear and pain become anger, really, I should say. And I think she was experiencing a lot of fear. I think she was experiencing a lot of pain. And I think out of that was anger. And I think what triggered that anger was probably because of the changes that took place in 2018, my relationship with this other woman began to unravel. When she found out that I had begun seeing someone else, this dispelled any illusions that she might have been clinging to. I think that's when the fear and the pain turned to anger. And to me, that's the best explanation that I've been able to come up with for why she went to the void, why she presented what she did in the way she did in order to lead to the board acting the way they do. So the two components, the emotional attachment to the relationship and also the financial aspect. Well, of course, if you're married and you die, then all of your assets transfer to Nancy. If you're divorced, then in the division of the assets, she would only receive a portion of the assets, whatever that might be. And so it, it seems you're implying or stating that one of the reasons, in addition to the emotional attachment to the relationship that Nancy wished to remain married was in the expectation of your impending death and the inheriting of the entire portfolio of assets. Yeah. Okay. And so, of course, a new relationship threatens that dynamic and as does your recovery and better prognosis threatens that. So then the question is, did going to the board move her any closer to the financial goal? Was the outcome of this a more favorable financial situation? Why was it necessary for her to, and the board, to engage in behavior, I don't know, aimed at, but certainly with the probable consequences of destroying your 
or damaging seriously your uh, reputation and ability to earn money professionally and so on. We can discuss what the board may have got out of it, yeah. but what did she get out of it? Mm -hmm. well, first of all, everything that I've said so far, I hope everybody realizes, and I want to reiterate, is essentially speculation. It's based on a lot of good information, which this happened, things that happened over time, over and over again, and things that changed direction due to specific things. So while it is speculation, and I've never had the chance to talk to Nancy about any of this thing, and I don't expect that I ever will, um, I think it's, it's my very best attempt to try to understand why on earth did Nancy do this, okay? And based on the information that I have, which is considerable considering I was totally involved in the situation for all of those years, this is what has emerged as my understanding. Now there is one other thing, it's the thing that I, I am reluctant to say anything about, and it's less speculation than the others. And I'm still not going to address it directly. I think at the very end, we'll perhaps talk a little bit about where you're left now. The divorce has been finalized and perhaps we can talk about that at the very end. But there's one more thing. What did the board get out of it? You know, I'm reminded of that scene in Count of Monte Cristo. Perhaps you're familiar with it, where Edmond Dantes is imprisoned in the prison and he uh, encounters a priest in that prison. And through their association, the priest teaches him um, all sorts of uh, mathematics and sword fighting and so on. But one of the things they do is they, they rec recapitulate the Count of Monte Cristo's imprisonment, the circumstances of his wrongful imprisonment. He's still unaware of why it is he's ended up in this prison. And through that and putting the pieces together, he figures out who stood to gain from his imprisonment and therefore can deduce um, who did what. That's that's what you know. Key key uh, scene there in the County of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas book. What do the board stand to gain from this situation? Perhaps all they gain is what they feel is a discharging of their moral duty. And it is the case that in Buddhism and Dharmic circles, there are quite a lot of have been quite a lot of scandals of gurus and so on being accused of assaulting students and so on, which actually even in their letter, you weren't accused of anything like that. So maybe they felt they were discharging a moral responsibility with the specter of those other scandals hanging over them, or perhaps they stood to gain something from your demise. But what do you think they may have stood to gain? Why did they act the way that they did? These were some of your, for context, most senior and close students who'd known you presumably for many, many years? Well, yes, this is, this is a question that I've asked myself. And, um, and that I, I think that everybody should ask themselves. I think it's really worth doing. And I've provided some information and what I put out there that uh, what, what I could see as things that had happened that might help to explain what they thought uh, they would gain from it. I mean, I, as, as I acknowledge there, uh, 
they were probably reacting a lot to Nancy's emotion. They're reacting to information that she had provided, framed and presented in a particular way. And I could see that a lot of their reaction, their own emotional reaction, played a, played a role in that. And I also agree that because there had been recently these, so many of these scandals involving Dharma teachers, that just the fact that there was a sexual component there may have led them to jump rather erroneously to the conclusion that, that ah, here we are, we're bored, we have the responsibility, we, we have to do what the Shambhala people do, we have to do what Noah Levine's people did, we have to do what Sasaki uh, Rossi's people did, all these kinds of things. That, you know, I can see those as all possibilities that dealt with that, uh, with their emotions and uh, perhaps their sense the uh, sense of responsibility misguided, not very well thought through. But I think another thing that was a major factor was a huge misunderstanding of what Dharma treasure was and what the whole situation was. Uh, from one perspective, Dharma treasure is an organization but it's not an organization of people. All Dharma Treasure really consisted of throughout most of its existence was me, Chuladasa, and the things that I did. When they came to be on the board of Dharma Treasure and found that there was a sizable amount of money in the bank account and that Dharma Treasure was now the owner of this very beautiful property and these very beautiful buildings in this very beautiful location. Um, they thought, I think this is just speculation. I'm just guessing that I think they misunderstood. They thought they were at the helm of an organization that was something that it wasn't and that it had a momentum that was due to something other than me. I, I mean, I don't know how they could have missed this, but you know, until they offered a dedicated practitioner's course and allowed 20% of the money that was retained, that, was, that came in to be retained by Dharma Treasurer. And then a bit later when they offered a retreat and uh, that was actually uh, the, uh, only the second retreat ever that had been sponsored by Dharma Treasurer. These were the only times that anyone, that anyone other than myself had brought money into the organization. So they thought it had a momentum independent of me, which it never had. So I think there may be, I don't know, there may be something that they thought they had to gain in terms of that organization being something that it wasn't and having a momentum independent of me that it didn't have, which they very quickly discovered wasn't the case. The same thing with this property that was to become a retreat center. It may have very well have seemed to them that, well, we have this, this successful, I mean, in the short time that we had operated as a retreat center, it had worked out very well. But the people that came for retreats were students and followers of mine. Once I had been 
once my reputation had been destroyed, their interest in coming on retreats to be with me was no longer part of what was sustaining that retreat center. Um, the, when people come on retreat, they need to be guided in terms of meditation interviews, and they're expected to, they expect to receive a bit of teaching along the way. Well, I had numerous students that had completed my teacher training courses, which could serve as, uh, they could come spend time and serve as resident teachers. So all of the pieces were present to have a flourishing retreat center, except for one thing, take me out of the picture and it's no longer there. Uh, I'm not even sure there's any point in value in this speculation at all, this conversation, but you asked the question, what did they have to gain? All I can say is perhaps through an obvious misunderstanding of what Dharma Treasure was and what that retreat center was and of my role in it, they may have thought that there was something to gain that there wasn't. I don't know if that answers your question or not. It does. In a way, they killed their golden goose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could say that. They resigned fairly shortly, some weeks after the letter. No, they said they were going to, but they hung in there. Even, you know, I, I have very little information regarding what happened other than most of them stayed on the board for quite a long time after. And I think the, there's either one of them still on the board, or if not, that person only left within, you know, recently within, say, two, three months. So, so no, they did not. Oh, there's another thing I'll mention here. They had created this dedicated practitioner course. Perhaps they thought they would keep offering that. But the only reason anybody signed up for their dedicated practitioners course is they had billed it as a future prerequisite to my teacher training courses, right? Without my teacher training courses, and especially without it not being prerequisite, it was not something that was going to continue either. Uh, Etc. and so on. It's once again, it all comes down to the same thing. They may have thought they had something that they didn't. Or maybe that has nothing to do with it. Right. Maybe it was uh, simply immoral. They felt they were just charging a moral responsibility. Yeah. Sure. Might yeah. have done that. Uh, whatever. I, I, you know, I, I'm not really concerned. It's, it's not something I care about very much. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for answering the question anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So the, I think the two remaining things to talk about are the sort of resolution in terms of the practical matters, and also maybe a little bit about the psychological and spiritual insights that you've gained over this period, and that's how you close the document. So before we get to that, which I think will be the place to end it, let me ask you this question about how it wrapped up. So in the wake of the letter, from what I understand, your accounts were emptied or depleted, your uh, bank accounts Mm -hmm. passwords were changed and you were locked out of email accounts and um, bank accounts and so on and so forth. Subsequently, you have finalized your divorce with Nancy. Yeah. So where are you left? In the immediate aftermath of the letter and the actions taken in terms of your uh, Dharma Treasures finances and your own personal finances, maybe you could mention what they are. And then subsequently now the divorce is finalized. Where are you left in terms of your finances and um, your ability to operate? Well, I don't have 
a lot of money. I don't have the money to do uh, one of the most important things that I want to do in the time that remains to me is to complete the two books that I have in progress and a third work that I have in mind and, and strong intentions for. I had hoped to have the money to be able to publish those in the same way I had the mind illuminated. Um, and I'm still hoping that I may be able to raise the money to do that. That money was all in the Dharma Treasure bank accounts and it was earmarked for that purpose, but now I no longer have access to it. So to accomplish what I want to in my life, I am going to have to ask for support because I just simply do not have the resources to, uh, to publish two and possibly three books. Do I have the resources to live long enough and while in life be able to work, complete the work on those books? I may, if I live carefully enough and simply enough, but once again, probably not without some kind of support from somewhere else. Um, by the time, you see, after this happened, I filed for divorce. By the time the divorce process set in and the date for the division of assets was set as December 31st, 2019, the, the vast majority of our common assets were in the form of real estate. And most of what cash was available was in various bank accounts of Nancy's. Um, also, as of December 31st, a very large amount of that money had already been spent. So what there was to divide was limited. Nevertheless, it was divided and the terms of division of assets in Arizona in a divorce like this is that the assets be divided equally. We entered into a collaborative divorce process so that Nancy and I negotiated each thing separately. As it turned out, in order to allow her to keep the property in Canada and a potential income for the future, uh, I made certain concessions in terms of the division of assets, including allowing the property to be considerably undervalued in terms of estimating the value of assets. So it ends up the only money that I have is uh, what was, it was, what was derived from the sale of one particular rental property that Nancy, that well, we had purchased, but it was Nancy's idea to purchase it. Um, and so I, I don't have a lot of money, but I do, you know, I, I'm not destitute yet. How long it will last and whether or not I can get other sources of income coming in. I, if I can get, if I can get at least one of these books completed, and if I can publish it myself in the way I hope to, then I will have royalty income from that and that will make it more comfortable going forward. So my plan is to just keep on keeping on the way I always have and I'll find a way to manage. And 
to the degree which I succeed will depend on how many people there are out there that would like to see me complete these books so that they're available and I can read them. They can read them. Um, and I'm happy with that. If it works out, that's wonderful. If it doesn't work out, I'm prepared for that as well. Um, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, for, for the record, I said there that you've been locked out of your accounts and they've been emptied and, and passwords have been changed. I said that that was from your account. That is what's in your account, isn't it? Well, that's yes, it's, it's in there and that all got resolved. I was able to recover my passwords. Of course, all these things belong to me. Like the Patreon account was always in my name, you know, to have just because they had access to my password to walk me out of it was ridiculous. All I did was I got back in and I changed the bank account that the Patreon uh, payments went to. Unfortunately, after the letter went out, a whole lot of my Patreons disappeared. My patrons disappeared. Likewise with these other accounts, I, I did recover them. They were mine to begin with. And, and uh, as far as the money in the bank, well, it was as a part of the, the divorce settlement, all of the assets were taken into account, money in the bank, real estate, everything else. And I'm satisfied with the reasonableness of this, that settlement. Like I say, I did, I did give a lot to Nancy because, you know, I, I still care about her. I want to make sure that she's all right. Uh, and she is. I have every confidence that if she cannot make it and be comfortable, uh, I would be very surprised. Uh, and I feel like, you know, I have confidence in my own ability to manage with the resources that I have. Not necessarily do what I'd like to do, not necessarily to live the way I'd like to live. And I quite honestly have no idea what's going to happen in the final stages of my life, especially with the disease I have. That is a big unknown. But hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with whatever it is. I'm really quite happy with the way things are right now. That leads us, I think, to the way you close your statement, which is with the psychological and spiritual insights that you've gleaned from this process. And, you know, to somewhat, to summarize very lightly, and of course, the full account is available. From a psychological point of view, you uncovered some blind spots to do with uh, an aversion to conflict, a uh, habit of withdrawing from conflict, mm -hmm. um, and um, a lack of boundaries, codependencies, um, stemming perhaps from childhood patterns and so on. And some, some of that is detailed in the account. And actually, you've discussed, you've discussed some of those things in other interviews uh, also, including our first interview, I should say. And from a spiritual point of view, you were part of your practice was this... Uh, a part of your state was this abiding in the now with without very much reference to past and future narratives so the uh, narrative structure of the uh, this is your uh, summary of your account the narrative structures that would have perhaps would have been useful to have mobilized in the discussions with the board were not available to you at the tip of your fingers because you weren't really living in that kind of a state um, and it was only as you recounted here in writing this document and recapitulating uh, the mm -hmm. events of the last four years that the narrative patterns became clear to you. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, I don't know if, if you want to comment on what I've said there, but I'm also curious, what happens? How, how was it for you when this letter came out? 
your reputation, as you've said, was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And um, in ways that you consider to be false. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that you were, in your view, caught doing something wrong, and that was the basis of the destruction of your reputation. Here, in your view, your reputation was destroyed on the, on the basis of something you didn't do, actually, uh, mm-hmm. that you were accused of something that, in your view, you didn't do. Uh, what was it like at the time, and how has it been for you to go through that kind of a situation? Mm-hmm. Quite devastating is the word that comes to mind. Yeah. Well, it was challenging, but it was absolutely not devastating. I mean, if there is any point to this practice at all, if anything that the Buddha promised people, if they did come and see for themselves, if any of that was valid, then uh, then I think that people have a reasonable expectation. I mean, they have a lot of unreasonable expectations, but the one reasonable expectation that they have is that someone like myself wouldn't fall apart, wouldn't be devastated, so on and so forth by this. And I was not. It was a mess. I knew I was responsible. I knew I had to figure out why, what I, what my responsibility was. I knew I had to do something about it. I knew I had an obligation, but I reacted pretty much the same way I did uh, back in January, 2008, when I was told I had ALS. Uh, back in uh, November of 2008, when I was told, well, it's not ALS, but it's chronic Lyme disease and it's almost as bad. And back the same way that I did in October of 2015, when I was told that you have a 7% chance of living five more years. Um, you know, it was one more thing. And on all of those occasions, it's okay. It is what it is. There's no need to make more of it than what it is. Dealing with what it is, is enough. And that's exactly how I approached it. I had something that I had to take care of. And so I proceeded to take care of it to the best of my ability. I proceeded to take care of it in spite of health problems that developed that made it more difficult to take care of. I proceeded to take care of it in spite of the fact that I had various financial difficulties that, uh, initially that made it difficult to, to do these things. You know, yeah, I did not enter into all of this papancha, all of this proliferation of thought processes, all of the second arrow suffering that I might have had this happened earlier in my life. No, no, that's not been a part of it. I had responsibilities to myself, to others. I had things that I needed to do. I proceeded to do them. I've been, I would say the last half year and a half of my life have been amongst the happiest years of my life because many of the things that detracted from my daily quality of life, especially over the preceding year and a half, that included the year 2018 with all of those problems, which by the way, I was also dealing with the same attitude as, okay, these are things I have to deal with, let me get on with it. But, um, you know, yeah, I, I can have no hesitation saying, I've been, I've been relieved of more problems and therefore had more freedom to enjoy 
the breaths that I breathe and the sunrises that I greet in the last year and a half than I did the preceding year and a half. And really, I would say that uh, this has been the course of my life for many decades. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. I wasn't devastated. And it's not because I'm some kind of a fool. It's because I'm wise enough to know there's no, that being devastated on top of all the other things I had to deal with was not going to help. Hmm. Fair enough. And at the, at the end of the document, you take quite some time to discuss the this living in the now that made narrative unavailable to you, you actually consider to be something of a, a plateau uh, mm -hmm. that you've since uh, gone by, gone past. Maybe it'd be useful to, to sketch that. You lay out very interesting in detail in, in the document. Uh, where are you now? Are you still living in the now such that the, the narrative uh, structures or threads of your life are unavailable to you in that same way? Where, where are you at now? And perhaps, you know, what's next for you? Well, let's see. <laughs> where, where am I now? One of the things that, uh, one of the wonderful things that's happened in my practice, well, let me just back up a little. One of the wonderful things that's happened in my life that's made my life so much better this last year and a half is that because I needed to understand why I had, had reacted or responded in the way I had to Nancy for years and to the situation for years and then to the board and things like that, I discovered a lot of things that had been subtle, invisible impediments uh, for me for all of my life. And through the discovery of those, working with the, working with the therapist, through the discovery of those, the recognition of those, <clears throat> quite honestly, when I, realized how perfectly I fit the description of somebody who is without boundaries and who is conflict avoidant. My reaction was, my God, at my age, how can I ever change that? I've been this way as far back as I can remember and totally blind to it. As a matter of fact, I thought these were, were, were very noble qualities of mine. And I realize now that even though they may manifest that way, they're not. What can I do about that? But what I discovered was through knowing about them, through being aware of them, through starting to catch myself in different situations, the divorce gave me a good opportunity to work on conflict avoidance and, uh, uh, and, and lack of boundaries. And many times in the course of the divorce, I made decisions that were reflections of lack of boundaries, lack of boundaries. I made decisions that were reflections of conflict avoidance. Uh, so in a sense, that's a price I paid for learning the lesson, but it's a price I'm happy to have paid. Um, this was good. My life has improved in many ways, many subtle little ways um, through, through now being aware of this tendency. And I've been far more successful than I ever thought I would be in establishing boundaries or recognizing when I'm acting in the absence of boundaries and doing something about it, or recognizing when I'm avoiding conflict instead of evaluating what is the more appropriate way to respond to this, uh, which sometimes is still to avoid it, right? 
Sometimes right. that is the best way. Turning the other cheek is the right kind of thing to do, but it's not globally. And I recognize that and I can evaluate this. And I feel really good about what happened just because it brought me to the place of understanding something. I wish I had understood this 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, you know, 70 years ago, it would have been wonderful. I didn't, but I do now. Now, with regard to my practice, <clears throat> it, let's say I had been a monastic. I could have been in this place of just being with suchness, with the unfolding of things as they were, of not engaging in autobiographical narratives, things like that, just basically living in the unfolding of now. I could have done that for the rest of my life comfortably. Um, but instead, I was in the world, and it came back to bite me. And then I was so happy to discover that this was something, because it's not spoken of in the suttas or the commentaries, you know, the only place that I found it addressed at all was in Mahayana literature. But sure enough, and it was a validation of something I've recognized for decades, is that you have to return to the marketplace. That, yes, I've seen that, you know, the, the wise llama in a cave in the mountains, you know, is stuck. His spiritual development has reached a certain plateau. Um, I had known that. I had known that many of the people that are admired for their spiritual accomplishments are doing exactly that. They're living in that place. And I began to, as I began to understand this more, I began to not just appreciate that this was a place that people could get stuck and that this is a reason that you're better off being in the world, but I began to see and appreciate those people who had not allowed withdrawal to keep them trapped in this place. And those were the, in, in the history of Buddhism and indeed many spiritual paths, the most outstanding figures are the ones who moved beyond that and were fully engaged with the world. The Buddha was an example of this. The Buddha was, I, you know, it's, it's understated, but he was involved in politics. He was advising kings as to whether or not they should go to war. Can you imagine the consequences if he was not extremely tactful in whatever advice he gave them? Uh, he encouraged people to withdraw from home life so that they could develop their, their personal, uh, develop their minds, follow the Dharma, develop their personal spirituality without the interference of that. But then he ended up with all of these followers and all kinds of problems and having to create the Linaya and all these rules here because of, I mean, where did he find himself? Found himself back in the world, right? He had created all of those things that initially the withdrawal from the world had been there to avoid. And he also found himself teaching lay people and having lay people achieve all of the same things that perhaps, I don't know, perhaps at one time he had thought that this was only what, what people had taken robes and withdrawn from the world would be able to do. So what I discovered is that even though I was engaged in the world, I was stuck in this plateau and it had come back to bite me. 
And I was so happy to realize that this had been recognized and that there was even a map for how to overcome it. And as soon as I saw it, I recognized what it was and I recognized how to apply it. And that became the basis of my practice for most of the last year, most of the last calendar year, uh, because it was, it was right around end of 2019, beginning of 2020 that I discovered this. I began reading these texts and I began practicing on the basis of them. Basically what it is, is that it's very easy once one is able to be in this place of presence of suchness to spend enough of one's time there only stepping into this other world of appearances enough to function in the world. And you can do that quite successfully. <clears throat> but what you don't do as a result is achieve the complete integration of these so that, you know, like I had always, I had can't tell you how long I had heard and how well I thought I understood form is emptiness and emptiness is form. It took on a whole new, it's taken on a whole new meaning for me. Samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. Oh, well, I thought I knew what that meant. Now I realize it is much more, it is a much more precise statement. It's not in any sense metaphorical or anything else. It is a precise and accurate statement. The Yogacharan view that uh, of the three natures, that the apparent nature is just as ultimate as the ultimate nature. Uh, okay. Wow, what does this really mean? I thought I knew before. Now I realize they are identical. There is no difference. The apparent nature is an equally valid manifestation of the ultimate as is the ultimate nature. These are the things that I have discovered. This is what my practice is about. And this is the place that I have come to live and function from. I no longer need to step back and forth. I no longer need to either leave either viewpoint. And I will, I, I fully intend to, uh, to share my experience here. And well, as a matter of fact, that's what I want to do with my life in general, what remains of it, is I'll share my experience. And I'll let people make of it what they will. And I'll try to frame my experience in a way that allows people to make maximum use of my experience. And I'll do my best to minimize the possibility of them projecting things. You know, I'm, I'm never going to prevent this. People always project their own expectations, their own thoughts of what they think you're saying. Uh, uh, People will always do that, but I'm gonna do my best to present my experience in a way that minimizes that so that those with eyes to see and ears to listen can benefit in whatever they can, or whatever way they can from my experience. And that will be, that will be my offering. And 
I have no attachment to how it's received. I'm making it, my intention is to make this as a gift. And a real gift, you don't care whether the person throws it in the trash or gives it away to someone else, do you? If it was really a gift, you don't care. You don't care if they say thank you or not, right? So I intend to make, to share my experiences as best I can for as long as I live and let people take whatever value that they can from me with no attachment on my part. That's the place that I'm coming from now in this document that I put out. Um, there's so much more that potentially could be said and done with that, but I don't think it's a good and productive use of my time that's left or my energy or, uh, it, or is it the best thing I have to offer anyone? So where can people find out about your activities and contact you? Yes, I have chuladasa.com. It's pretty primitive. needs a whole lot of work. Uh, that's one of the things that I'm going to be able to move on to now that I've, now that I've made my response, fulfilled my obligations to, to the Dharma community, is I'm going to put together my site so I have a place to post blogs and things like that. Chuladasa.com. Simple as that. Well, Chuladasa, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and uh, answering these questions. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. I hope that what I've had to say is useful to people. I hope in terms of being an interviewer that it has, uh, to some degree at least, fulfilled your hopes or expectations for this interview. I'll press play. Okay. Now, as to, as to what those accusations in that letter of August 2019 were, there's very few people that even know what they were for the simple reason that they were made in such a vague and general way that they allowed all kinds of things to arise in people's mind. That subsequently, I found people think that that letter said so many things that it never did say, right? They think that it says things like, I paid money for sexual prostitutes, all kinds of things like that. It never said that. It implied so much, or it was sufficiently vague that it could be. So essentially what it did, it was like in the military, they use smoke grenades or smoke bombs. The idea is that you can slip from here to there in the smoke, your enemies will be shooting at shadows and their ammunition will be wasted and hopefully you'll get through the smoke without being hit. That's what it's created, this huge cloud of smoke. And people think they've seen in that letter all kinds of things that were never in that letter. I know that one of the people on the board who has also worked with me very closely on the book, all his, he lived by the adage, less is more. And that's exactly what this is about. Another one of those people has worked in marketing and advertising. Marketing and advertising is all about doing exactly that. You sell the sizzle. You let the person's imagination fill in everything else, right? You just sell the sizzle. And that's effectively what that letter did. Very few people who think they know what that letter says if they go back and read it carefully, will they find that it actually says most of the things that they think? That's one of the first things that I realized. 
at first I tried to respond to the content of that letter point by point. And then I realized, well, it's impossible because the points are so elusive and vague and tend to expand into this cloud of smoke that to try to address one of those points from the point of view of I'm on the other side of the smoke and I know what's really there, it's impossible because what the person that you're trying to address this to, you know, the reader who, who has all this confabulation in their mind about what the letter says, if there's no way you can hit all of the possible targets and interpretations that have arisen. But that's why I concluded I had to write this long, detailed description, because it was the only way to counter this less is more, this marketing and advertising approach of just allowing everybody's imagination to run away with what they thought they were being told. So, And of course, I will link to both the original letter for context and your response, your recently released account, so people can go back and carefully read uh, both the original letter and your response. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Tuladasa. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. And, uh, you have, yes. May you have a wonderful day. The rest of what remains of it and everything else. Hope to talk to you again. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.